You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on my book, The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Globalization and Innovation, Redefining Growth and Progress How to Tame Globalization In this episode, I continue my journey through the intellectual heartland of America's sustainability thought leaders. Let me begin with Nobel Prize winner for economics and former World Bank senior vice president and chief economist, Joseph Stiglitz. I wanted to know his views on globalization, which is a theme running through many of his books. It is clear that Stiglitz is sympathetic to the critics of globalization. As he puts it, and I quote, We have learned how to temper capitalism, how to make the market economy work in the advancing industrial countries for most citizens, or at least we have until recently, but we haven't learned how to temper globalization. End quote. The problem with globalization, according to Stiglitz, is not with the concept or the trend itself, but with the way in which globalization was managed, which was disadvantageous to developing countries, even disadvantageous to many people in developed countries. One of the paradoxes, he says, was that while in principle everybody was supposed to be better off as a result of globalization, and therefore everybody ought to be supporting globalization, in practice the opposition to globalization rose from both the North and the South. It had unified so much of the world against it because of the way it was managed. There were some winners, but there were a lot more losers. Stiglitz acknowledges that one of the concerns is that some special interests, corporate interests, have been able to do within the international agenda what they could not do within the domestic agenda. For instance, America now has good environmental regulations for air and water. Many people in the corporate sector resisted the introduction of these, but now realize that they've made a tremendous difference to their standard of living. They can breathe the air, drink the water, it's made a big difference, and there's almost universal support. But what was put into international agreements like NAFTA undermined some of these environmental safeguards. They were almost designed to make it more difficult to have good environmental regulations. And so in a sense, they were undermining the democratic process. I wondered if Stiglitz felt the American position on climate change was part of this distortion of international standards by special interests. He said climate change is a global issue and will only be solved globally, and so more than any other issue it's brought to the fore that we share one planet and we have to work together. It can't be that the United States or Europe push their view of what has to be done on the rest of the countries. They won't accept it. The position under the Kyoto Protocol was that those who polluted more got to pollute more in the future. That doesn't make any sense. So, says Stiglitz, I think it's going to take a very big change in the mindset to go from where we are to where we will have to be. The minimal acceptable framework is equal emissions per capita, and I don't think the US and EU are yet ready to accept that principle. But that's the only one I think 
that developing countries will accept. It's a basic principle of sharing the burden of saving the planet. I asked Stiglitz whether he was optimistic about the future. He answered that the most exciting developments are the result of the efforts of civil society to bring the attention of everybody to what has been going on. Before the Seattle riots, no one really understood what was going on. There was an enthusiasm that was not tempered by reality. As people started looking at what had happened at the IMF and World Bank, failures of regulation of the global financial markets, there was a widespread recognition that something has not worked well. So understanding there is a problem is necessary before you're going to change. On the other hand, said Stiglitz, there are some people who benefit from the system as it works today, and they are going to make it difficult to make the changes that we have to make. For example, I don't think America nor the developing countries benefit from our cotton subsidies. Our taxpayers pay, and the developing countries are worse off. The same is true with our corn-based ethanol subsidies and our tariffs on imported sugar-based ethanol from Brazil. About 25,000 cotton farmers in the US and a couple of companies are doing well from corn-based ethanol, but the number of losers is so much greater than the number of those who gain. So he concluded, overall, there are some big opportunities for gains to both the developed and developing countries, but these special interests play an important role. That's why in some senses the problems have to do with deficiencies in democracies in the advanced industrial countries, corruption in the advanced industrial countries, corruption through campaign contributions. There's a growing awareness in the United States about the nature of that corruption. The question is, will we be able to do something about it? Beyond uneconomic growth. Another former World Bank economist that I interviewed was Herman Daly, the legendary author of books like Steady State Economics, For the Common Good and Beyond Growth. For most of his career, Daly has been challenging the limits of his own profession. For instance, he began by telling me, what's really wrong with economics is that in the very first pages of any textbook, you'll find a basic picture of the economy, a diagram of circular flow of firms and households. It's an isolated system, so there's no environment, there's no physical context. And having abstracted from all those relations, that gets us into trouble when we try to apply the conclusions and the abstract models to reality. You have to go back and start again. This abstraction starts with what Daly calls Homo economicus, which is conceived as a kind of animistic individual who is related externally to other individuals and to the environment and other things. The relationships are external to the definition of a person. We want to substitute the concept of person in community as our definition of the new Homo economicus, by which we mean that people are not really defined independently of their relationships to others that relationships are really internal to the identity of a person. Some of his ideas get quite esoteric and philosophical, but one of Daly's breakthrough concepts couldn't be simpler or more grounded, the notion of uneconomic growth. I asked Daly to elaborate. 
It's quite possible, he said, given the fact that we live in a finite world and all of our activities require some depletion and some pollution, some negative effect on the system of which we're a part. It's possible that the larger our economy gets, the heavier the burden on the rest of the system. There comes a point where the benefits, which are real, of expansion of the economy may outweigh the costs inflicted on the rest of the system of the expanded economy. I asked Daly for some examples. The biggest one right now is climate change, he said. The costs resulting from economic expansion and consuming more fossil fuels. And likewise for things like acid rain, ozone layer depletion, the mobility of labor, uprooting communities, moving people around. These are costs. You might say, isn't it better to be rich than poor? Yes, absolutely. Most of our problems are easier to solve if we're rich rather than poor. But how do we get richer? And people say, well, obviously by growth. Well, no, that's not so obvious anymore. It may be that there's a point at which growth can become uneconomic and make us poorer rather than richer. And at that point, we have to back off from growth. Beyond simply being a theory, Daly and co-author John Cobb designed the Index for Sustainable Economic Welfare, which subtracted these externalities from gross national product and revealed that the US, the UK and other developed economies have seen a plateau in their net welfare since the 1970s, despite continued economic growth. Daly believes that the index has not really been taken up very seriously by standard economists. They just still go right along with GDP and don't take on board the critique that we and other people have leveled against it, he said. That may be true, but Daly and Cobb's work has been adopted and adapted and expanded through other measures like the Genuine Progress Indicator, the Human Development Index, and the Ecological Footprint. Like Stiglitz, Daly is rather critical of the way globalization is being advanced. He believes that real community, historically where it exists and where we have institutions for mutual caring and taking responsibility, are pretty much at the national or sub-national level. What is happening is that instead of following the original charter of Bretton Woods and strengthening interdependence among separate national communities, we are abolishing or erasing the boundaries of these national communities through this concept of economic integration, free trade, free capital mobility, and increasingly easy migration, so that nations really no longer have much clout vis-a-vis serving transnational corporations. And we're doing this in the interest of a very poorly defined and historically baseless notion of global community. That's why I praise the Bretton Woods Institution, concluded Daly. The way it was set up, it was going for what I might call friendship and mutual respect and good relationships among nations. So it was saying, let's all be friends and work together. But this new thing, it doesn't say let's all be friends. It says, let's all get married and become one. And I don't think we're anywhere near ready for that. It's a bit of a subterfuge or a ruse that covers a whole multitude of attacks on community where it really exists in the name of some world without boundaries, which is a nice song lyric, but not much 
in the way of a policy prescription. The Art of Barrier Busting Having exhausted my list of former World Bank economists, I made my way across the country to Boulder, Colorado to speak to the maverick engineer, or perhaps more accurately, imagineer, Amory Lovins, founder and CEO of the Rocky Mountain Institute. While Stiglitz and Daly focus mainly on economics and policy reform, Lovins is more interested in business and technological solutions, what he calls barrier busting, turning into business opportunities each of the 60 or 80 well-known market failures to energy and resource efficiency. Lovins made his name as a co-author of the book Factor 4, published in 1997, which was about doubling wealth while halving resource use. The main thing that's happened since, he explained to me, is that our design methods and technologies have improved so much that we much more often achieve Factor 10 than Factor 4, and sometimes Factor 100 or more. He was quick to point out that We're not talking so much about technologies as of design methods or design mentality. To illustrate what he means, he gave me an example of how to save 92% of the energy in a pumping loop in industry in a way that works better and costs less to build. That's not because of any change in the pumps or controls or process, but because we're using fat, short, straight pipes instead of thin, long, crooked pipes. It's nothing new at all. It's good Victorian engineering rediscovered. It's optimizing the whole system for multiple benefits, not isolated components for single benefits, and therefore getting multiple benefits from single expenditures. From this sort of thinking, Lovins has created an entire philosophy. That sort of design is much more fun, and it's the way nature designs, he told me. Nature doesn't just do one thing, and of course, the better the technologies you use, the more you can achieve, but the design mentality is much more important than any technological novelty. Talking to Lovins, you start to wonder why we haven't already solved all the world's problems. After all, he makes it sound so simple and economically lucrative, and yet many of these common-sense solutions have yet to achieve scale. I wanted to know why. We are seeing now some quite dramatic developments, though, he counted. Many of the new buildings we're designing use no or negative amounts of energy. They create more than they use. They have very good economics. It's now perfectly normal to talk about tripled efficiency cars, heavy lorries and airplanes. Could Lovins name any pioneering companies? Walmart, of all people, have now demanded doubled efficiency heavy lorries at their suppliers, he said, adding that they'll make billions off of it, so they're highly motivated. We're using their demand pool to drag those lorries into the market so everybody can buy them. Walmart is quite straightforward that it likes that idea and it's going to do the same with white goods for the household, making them very efficient at low cost and high volume. The lighting revolution is perhaps the best known where we went from incandescent to compact fluorescent to LED, and factor 10 is not at all unusual in that transition anymore. You can't fault Lovin's gift of the gab. Once he got going, the examples just kept on flowing. 
United Technology has recently cut its energy 45% in about five years, and DuPont has cut its greenhouse gas emissions to 80% below 1990 levels and made $3 billion profit on the deal. Efficiency is cheaper than fuel. Dow made $3 billion, BP made $2 billion, and so on, just substituting efficiency for fuel. So word is getting around that efficiency matters. Efficiency is cheaper than fuel. Therefore, planet protection is not costly but profitable. I think that once that is quite widely understood in the political realm, the main resistance will melt faster than the glaciers. Natural Capitalism and Biomimicry Another highly influential book that Lovins co-authored is Natural Capitalism. I asked him how that differed from Factor 4. He explained that not only was it for a business rather than a policy audience, but it was much more complex because advanced resource productivity was only the first of the four interlocking principles of natural capitalism. Principle 2 is to produce things the way nature does with closed loops, no waste and no toxicity. Principle three is leasing services or benefits rather than selling products. And the fourth principle is to take the profits from the previous three activities and invest some of it back into the capital you're shortest of, namely nature, and therefore maximize biodiversity and the fecundity of nature. One of the concepts embedded in natural capitalism is Janine Benyus's notion of biomimicry. Since Lovins is a bit of a techie, I wondered how he saw this approach as compared with biotechnology. They're exactly the opposite, he declared emphatically. If I were doing biotech and I wanted to know how I make something like spider silk that's tougher than Kevlar and stronger than steel, I would look for a gene that the spider uses and I'd stick it in a goat and try to extract silk out of the goat's milk and hope the gene doesn't go somewhere else. But if I'm doing biomimicry, I'd figure out how the spider makes the silk, and then I'd imitate that process. I concluded the interview by asking what gives Lovins hope. Three things stand out, he mused. One is the rapid rise of awareness and leadership in the private sector and the corresponding awakening of civil society, empowered by the emerging global central nervous system. Secondly, he said, I'm encouraged by the fact that brains are evenly distributed, one per person, and as far as we know, there's nothing in the universe so powerful as six billion minds wrapping around a problem. And third, he said, I am very encouraged by the quality of the young people I see. They realize there is less time and they need to get on with it, and there's less frivolity and more focus on doing what's necessary. So I think the future is in pretty good hands, he concluded. Then, with his trademark quirky humor, Lovins ended by saying, it's really too early to tell whether this zany evolutionary experiment of combining a large forebrain with opposable thumbs will turn out to be a good idea. But the search for intelligent life on Earth is starting to turn up some promising specimens.